Right, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. A lot of people are still finishing off their lunch, but uh, we'll uh, press on ahead because we're uh, trying to keep as closely as possible to the schedule for the sake of uh, people watching the live webcast. There, our next speaker is Mark Harmsworth, who's a school teacher up in uh, Wrexham, then also closely associated with the TP project, and he's just told me earlier today that he's actually going to be um, leaving teaching to work full-time for TP shortly, and he's going to be talking about current robotic perspective at key stage two and three. The speaker was uh, scheduled to follow straight after him, Ian Johnston, there's apparently had a uh, car problems and not going to be able to be with us, so we'll try to um, um, move the subsequent talks up as far as we can there to, so that we can free up a bit more time for the discussion at the end there. So uh, if I could ask the, all the speakers scheduled this, this afternoon not to try and fill up the, the time that's been freed up by Ian Johnston not turning up. Okay, if we can uh, hand over to Mark Harmsworth now. <coughs> all right, good afternoon. I think I've got the best slot of the day actually because... Um, Everybody's still having their lunch, and um, there's so few people here, so I'm quite happy. Um, one of the things I have given out, or hope people have got on the way through, was um, a folder that probably looked like that. I know there's a couple of people that are on the side over on the here, um, <clears throat> which I'll point out. I'll go through some of this stuff in a minute because it does have some relevance. The reason for me talking today was to try and put a kind of an accurate perspective, actually, on what is going on at the moment in the schools because well you'll see in a minute <clears throat> key stage two currently as I say this is a perspective that I have um, from dealing with primary schools and secondary schools that I know one version they have currently at the moment is this little device called Bbot um, there is a relevance for me putting the prices the prices I literally just took from one particular website so I wasn't necessarily targeting any organisation in particular. Um, one version, as I say, is Bbot. Of course, you've heard from um, Valiant <coughs> and Roma there. A third version, which seems to be in use, is another version called Probot, which is here. <coughs> now, some of these, Bbot and Probot, have software that can be loaded onto computers so that pupils can do kind of virtual kind of test driving and various controlled devices with. There is also in schools, of course, Junior Logicator. Um, Fisher Tech, Connects Kits, and a whole raft of other kind of kit forms. As I say, there is a reason for these prices because when I was asking questions of the primary schools um, in terms of systems and control robotics work, one of the big fundamental problems that they have is that if a teacher is in charge of D&T, they have on average between 300 to 500 pound a year for the whole of that school. So when you start to break down some of these kind of financial restrictions they have, you begin to see that some of the the B-bots and the Romas and some of the software, for example, becomes takes quite a hefty chunk of their budget already. Also, of course, in primary schools, you're dealing with non-specialist teachers delivering the content. And bless them, they do an absolutely sterling job trying to encourage these kids and be supportive and just, um, 
bring out new things into education. So in the primary schools, they're very, very heavily reliant <coughs> on outside agencies or specialist people to come in and deliver specialist skills. Now, the, school I, the schools I was talking to, I'm actually based in North Wales at the moment, in Wrexham. Um, we have Careers Wales who come into schools and deliver kind of specific modules every now and again. And some of their work is also supported by um, the set point, which is based in Glamorgan University and a whole loads of other things. So they're the ones who are asked to come in and deliver all of these kind of curriculum requirements to the schools. <clears throat> there is also, for Key Stage 2, um, the teachers are under massive amounts of time constraints. And this is another thing I'm going to point out very shortly. Um, because, of course, the primary teacher has got so much to do within the course of their day that they don't necessarily have the time to develop new kind of ideas, new courses, new exciting things because of the time restrictions, because they've got to cover every single subject. So I'm going to just move on briefly to Key Stage 3, what is actually happening at this moment in time from my perspective. We've got, of course, pickaxe. We've got the chip factory. We've mentioned some of these things. Another one as a control software we've got is Logicator. And, of course, I know other people around here are going to talk about this later on, loads of Lego stuff that's coming in. Um, just a few pictures there. Now, I've included, <coughs> possibly a little bit controversially, a picture on the, the far left-hand side um, to do with air muscles. And I'm actually going to draw, draw back on that in a minute because I know that it's something that I've been kind of pushing for years um, through the ways I can. Secondary schools, again, constraints on time, budgets, etc. My budget at my particular school currently, for an entire year, we get on average about £7,500. Now that has to cover everything from food, textiles, resistant materials, graphics, systems of control, and... So that £7,500 very, very quickly disappears. So if you broke down the number of pupils you've got in a school for that amount of money, it becomes a very, very small amount of money. So, of course, one of the things that we have to bear in mind are these budgetary constraints. Another thing which I briefly touched on earlier was about the time to develop new ideas. How many people in this room at this moment in time could put up their hands if they are actually still a teacher in a classroom. Two, seven, eight. Okay. And I include myself here as well. Okay. So, you know, congratulations to you because you are kind of almost the enlightened ones. We're, the reason we're here is we're looking for new exciting things all the time. Okay. A lot of teachers haven't got the time to be developing new ideas. Okay. Which I think is a, is a fundamental issue here, which I'm going to touch on a bit later. So that is one thing. We've also got constraints with the timetabling, as somebody mentioned earlier. Um, the grades, exam grades, constantly driven by um, the statistics that the school put out and the data that they're kind of saying, you must reach this target by. Okay, A lot of factors are being put on us to make sure we deliver. Another one here is to do with head teachers. Now, I was having a discussion um, during the kind of lunchtime break about this. I was talking to my 
head teacher about this in terms of kind of career development. And how can we as teachers get out there to get the career development? This important thing. And there were kind of two key points that kind of came across. One was in terms of the funding. For example, in Wales, and I know in some schools, the only way they will release a teacher from that school to go on a career development is if they apply to the General Teaching Council of Wales, in which case you are entitled, one teacher is entitled up to about £600 in funding, okay, and you've got to specify that project at some point quite early in the financial year. Okay, so it realistically means that eight, one teacher might get out for two days, possibly, at some point in the year. And that is the only way schools will allow teachers to get the funding to go out of school. The other thing that was interesting was the head teacher, in terms of him saying that <coughs> he was concerned about the quality of learning that is being lost from the teacher not being in that classroom. But then it kind of struck me that if the teacher doesn't have the career development, then they can't get the better quality in the classrooms, and it becomes a vicious circle in terms of overall quality. So I couldn't really quite fathom that one out. So the, teacher, the head teachers aren't releasing them because of the lack of teacher in the classroom for that period, and they're also saying about financial constraints. And then, of course, we're being constantly driven by targets and statistics. I started to try and look at this and try and map it out as a, as kind of a graph form in terms of what currently is going on across foundation. Well, it's, of course, key stage one is now called foundation tier. Key stage two, key stage three, key stage four. And I then added air muscles. Now, <clears throat> for those people who work in um, universities, okay, air muscles were brilliant. Absolutely brilliant idea that came in um, as, a, as an actuator for pneumatics. And I came across this many years ago from Salford University when they are doing some stuff. Um, but they can be created so, so cheaply. Okay, realistically, I was building air muscles for a, um, an artificial arm. And I was, they, I was making each one for less than about £1.50. Okay, and that included the, kind of new, the proper pneumatic fittings. And, of course, that can be linked into the pneumatic systems. And it just gives a different perspective on what is happening within pneumatics. Now, this comes back a little bit, comes back to what Torben was saying on the very first thing in terms of his picture of iRobot. Because iRobot, of course, was whole, the whole design of him was using air muscles as a kind of a humanoid type of actuator. And I think, actually, we could be trying to get these back into schools. Probably key stage three, key stage four. Anyway, that's just a bugbear of mine. National curriculum, there's been a lot of discussion about this recently, um, even this morning, in terms of where the robotics could fit in. I've literally just tried to do it here to say I don't really want to go over all these points. But, of course, in <coughs> Wales, we have a slightly different national curriculum. Okay, so of course everything's slightly peculiar. So you can see at key stage two they're saying 4B, 4C. In the revised national curriculum for Wales, it's point 0.15. Okay, it's almost saying the very same things. Again, key stage three, again in Wales, we've got a new revised curriculum for Wales. So that's different. 
To give you some idea, I reckon at the moment the Wales is actually at least a year behind where England is now. That's just a, a point. In this little booklet that I gave out, or most people should have had, there will be a document. <coughs> it's just a page of document. But many years ago, uh, TEP, when they were involved in the, the techno games, did a mapping task in terms of how techno's games fitted into the national curriculum in terms of kind of group work, individual work. And you'll see from in this booklet, one of, the, one of these pages has much more in-depth um, information about how that was mapped to the national curriculum. I think it was then, actually, rather than the new revised versions, if you just be aware of that. So that shows that TEP has spent quite a considerable amount of time doing some mapping on this back in Techno's Games times. Um, the other version that is in your little booklet was another booklet that we put out concerned with kind of very simple forms of motion and very easy ways of creating movement, predominantly using a lot of the TEP uh, resources. Okay. Um, I put it all into a folder at the moment because, as Ashley pointed out, um, come the summer, I'm actually leaving teaching, um, and I'm actually not, I'm not working full time for TEP, but I will be doing um, working part time for them, developing some of their their new projects and being involved in the new diplomas in engineering. Um, and going to a point somebody said a while ago, um, what we're trying to do at TEP is to do is to create the support materials that can go out to the consortiums so that they can then deliver it in a, in a, in a particular way. Okay? Of which, at the moment, we've got about, I think there's definitely three modules or three units that have already been written for the higher and advanced levels. And gradually, we're going to start to introduce more and more of these. And a lot of these will go up through the TEP website <coughs> um, and under the new uh, website, which is actually... This is the latest version of News and Views, which I only got yesterday, but there's an, there'll be a new dedicated website for the engineering diplomas, um, which is double E2, E squared, basically. Um, but that's for your benefit. Of course, what we have done in the past TEP and in schools that's been very successful is developing a lot of kind of very simple kind of robotic movements. Now, these are just a few examples um, that have happened over the years in terms of very simple simple movements. Most of these are kind of DIY-type principles. Um, using some component kits, for example, the clunk kit gearboxes, using the, pick um, the pickaxe software, some are using kind of simple on-off switches, but could very easily be adapted to having kind of sensory systems built onto them. Um, we've also got behind us quite a lot of history in terms of doing all the drawings and support material. <clears throat> um, a lot of these drawings originally were done in Pro Desktop, um, but now we're also going across to the Pro Engineer stuff as well, because that's coming into schools as another system. The little one on the left-hand side, bottom left actually, should have been an animated um, sequence, again done in Pro Desktop, Pro Engineer, but I didn't export the file properly. So I'm sorry about that, it's not working. Um, <clears throat> another thing which I picked up on from this morning was 
we're very good. We're very good about talking about what we're going to do or what we'd like to do. But I think one of the things we need to also address is how are we going to get that information out there so that the rest of the teachers are a little bit more enlightened. Now, at the moment, as you will see from the little pack that I gave you, um, News and Views, that's published, we publish a magazine once every, well, it's four times a year. No, it's not, it's actually termly, sorry. Once a term, we try and get a, an article, um, a magazine out. You can see the quality and the calibre of the information from the one you've hopefully got in front of you. So all I've literally done is extracted some pages from some of the information, um, some of the previous news and views, showing, for example, kind of little tiny sumo bots. Um, there's a Mars mission. Cyber pets, that was a little six-legged walking robot with sensors and all sorts of other things. I've put also this picture about to do with the air muscles because I think, you know, something we need to start looking at and addressing because, of course... With the new diplomas for engineering that are coming in, it's all well and good us kind of saying, this is the new diplomas for engineering here, and then kind of letting everything else fall by the wayside at earlier stages. You know, if we've got the diplomas in engineering here, we've got to start looking at putting in place these things at key stage three, and again back into key stage two, to support these pupils as they come through to do the diplomas in engineering. So it's kind of taking a bit more of a kind of a global view on things. And I think that is me done. So if anybody has any questions, please feel free to ask me. Any questions? Okay, if we, uh, thank you very much. Okay. It was a connection there with our next speaker in the techno games. So our next speaker is Adrian Marshall, who was very much involved in the uh, BBC techno games and the Roboteers in Residence. And he'll be speaking about robot, Roboteers, Teachers, and Promoting Maths and Physics. Okay, we've heard a lot... This morning from various people, uh, teaching side, um, educationists, people who are assessing um, robotics events. I, I'm a roboteer, um, so that's, yes, another viewpoint. And hopefully there'll be something that you can pick up from, from my views on this particular, particular subject. Um, I say I'm a roboteer, that's not my proper job. I have a day job, which is manufacturing machines to make food equipment, um, and that pays the money, if you like. Um, but I also devise and run competitive robotics events and compete in the odd one myself with my daughters whenever I can persuade them to join in. Um, so I get work around the country, and I've actually had some work abroad as well, China, um, organising and being part of robot events for schools, colleges, youth groups, basically anybody who will pay me a small amount to go out there. Uh, quite a lot of family learning um, and educational um, sort of things. But the education part is sort of only part of it. I have a criteria for designing my events. Um, basically, it's events I would have loved to have done 30 years ago when I was a kid. Okay? And that's not a bad starting point. There's a number of criteria, um, not quite as esoteric maybe as some of the criteria we talked about it easier earlier. Sorry, um, They've got to be cheap. 
schools, as we know, haven't got that much money. So I try and make it fall from junk wherever possible. Um, it's definitely got to be fun. Um, a range of different levels. Quite often you go into a school and you have no idea on the calibre of the student. And so you've got to be able to have a number of sort of cut-off points where you can change halfway through and, you know, or give them extension activities, that sort of thing. Uh, I find competitions quite good. Um, they motivate the children. If you can have something at the end which involves them seeing how well a robot performs or even maybe uh, competing against each other, then that's also quite motivating. Um, educational is in there somewhere, um, light blue on the right-hand side. If you can take something home, if the kids can take something home, or if I'm doing a family learning, if they can take something home as a family that they've created, then actually that's very good as well. It's a shame when they have to do all that work and then leave it behind because the bits were too expensive. I do a lot of radio control stuff, but obviously I can't give them a radio control set to go home with. Um, it also has to demystify technology to some extent. I'm a great believer in taking things to bits. Um, there was comments earlier today about children making things. Well, taking things to bits is the prere prerequisite, I reckon, to, to making them. Um, if you can take them to bits and make them again afterwards, then you're a, a full engineer. And the final criteria, which is very important for the practical roboteer, is that no event should take up more than one boot full of your car. And this is when you're doing multiple events at multiple schools. You need to have room in your car to get all the bits and pieces in. So just to give you some quick examples, um, I, I just looking for a way of classifying them, and water, air, and land actually came to mind. Um, I do robot fishes, various sorts. The one on the left is the sort of starter fish. Uh, you, you turn a little bit of wire up the middle of this fish. The wire's bent into a particular shape, and it makes your dolphin flap its tail up and down or your shark flap its tail left and right. You can also make caterpillars. Uh, basically, I give the kids all of the pictures of fish. They decide what sort of fish they want to make, and then we use lolly sticks and bits of wire and expanded foam, and three hours later they have something that will wiggle. The slightly more advanced one, which still takes only three hours, is to make a real swimming fish. Um, the competition here is whether it floats, is the first part of the competition. The second part of the uh, competition is whether it moves. Uh, if it moves forwards, well done. I've actually had one that swam backwards, and I don't understand that. But these are made from basically junk. Um, I buy uh, cordless screwdrivers from Woolworths for £2.99 each and that gives us a nice rechargeable battery and a motor and gearbox. The body is made from a windoline bottle, um, which is hopefully waterproof, and they have to make the tail. And in three hours, you have maybe five or six fish to swim in a paddling pool or a swimming pool, that sort of thing. So it doesn't have to cost a lot, but they can actually be quite effective. Uh, the air examples, it's a bit of a cheat, really. The one on the left is a solar-powered dragonfly. It doesn't actually really fly. It just flaps its wings. Uh, the main element there is the, uh, the actuator. You can see just behind the eyes on the bottom picture there. That's actually a CD-ROM drive lens focusing system. Um, so the ideal for this is your children that come along bring an old CD-ROM out of their dad's computer or mum's computer, usually ask their parents first. I, I do try and stress that. And they, ba they build with a little bit of soldering, and this is their, probably their first bit of soldering they've done, a little circuit board which makes uh, the wings flap every few seconds in bright sunlight. And as you can see, there are days when I make quite a lot of those. I made 11 in one day, which was too many. Um, on the right-hand side is a very, very basic one. I do this one in primary schools. Um, this is basically, in techno games, I did a high-jumping frog. Um, 
it did quite well. It got five metres off the ground on one elastic band. This is the cardboard version, um, which just gets maybe a metre or so off the ground. It involves gluing together some bits of cardboard, strapping an elastic band across the bottom and letting it jump. Um, kids of all ages love it. I'm doing one at, at Cubs this, this uh, Thursday. Um, and, and you can do it in a small team, so you get something that takes home at the end. And it costs, I think, £2.40 for the kit. Uh, and that includes me going along and doing it all as well, I suppose. The land example is a bit more conventional. Um, so diagonally across the middle, there are some radio-controlled stuff um, tying into the sort of robot wars type thing, which, again, is just a bit of cardboard to get the body and a, a radio set that I supply. Um, that, that I've now found a way of borrowing radio control sets from friends around the, around the village, and I can now do five or six competitor football where we've got radio-controlled little buggies with little arms and hitters and things, and they run around doing football. Now, is this educational? I don't know. It's great fun, and the kids enjoy it, and the parents enjoy it and stuff. Uh, on the right-hand side is um, a big scorpion that was done at my local school over a period of weeks um, to make a, a large scorpion with a working tail, which is what the kids wanted to do. I went in and said, what do you want to make? And a term later, I suppose, we came out with that. So that's supporting them doing exactly what they want and maybe guiding them a little bit. On the bottom left-hand side is some mind storms. Um, you'll be, I think, hearing about some of that later on. This is my own take on the particular um, mind storms thing, which is making programmable Lego robots. This is a robot curling. Uh, this was last week. Um, and what we've got there, we've got on the actual track there, we have a, a device that's going, trying to get to the middle of the target. It's actually got a sweeper on it. That little thing hanging off is a sweeper that swings around and knocks, knocks little obstacles out of the way. Very important because one of the more creative teams decided to put on the back of their um, little robot a, a tray full of little bits and set a timer so that when, it got, when they got into position, it threw little bits of Lego all over the course to mess up other people. So this is me setting down an original challenge and them interpreting it in a, a creative way, which is actually all to the good. So that's the land. Why do I do it? Well, I do it because I thoroughly enjoy it. Um, the kids, I think they do it because they enjoy it. And I really want just to inspire the next generation of innovative engineers. And for any of those who are particularly interested, the machine at the bottom is a Brussels sprout trimming machine which uses a complex three-dimensional motion rotation system to reorientate Brussels sprouts so I can chop the bottoms off and put crosses in the bottom so they're ready to cook, okay? Loads of cameras, loads of robotics, but that's the real job, okay? Hopefully a lot of this is very familiar to teachers. You'll recognise the motivations about enjoying it, most, most of the time maybe, some of the time wanting to inspire the kids and getting the kids to enjoy it. But you've also got this nasty other little bit about having to deliver on the national <coughs> curriculum. Now, I'm not a teacher. I've not done any of the theory of, of all these psychologists of, of what people do, but mo student motivation must be key to getting them to learn. And the ideal situation must be when students are seeking knowledge from themselves because they want to achieve some end goal. That's a Robertier's view. If it's wrong... Now, you can see robot, robotic competition as a motivator obviously fits straight into the design technology curriculum when you've got mechanisms and control and all that sort of stuff. You know, building a buggy to do something involves mechanics and friction and Lego and all sorts of things and programming and stuff. That's all, that's all directly relevant. But what I would like to question today is whether we can 
use robotics, if you like, as a reward to try and tempt people into other areas of the curriculum that are maybe less attractive. And so I wanted to just briefly talk to you about one... It's, it's not quite an event I've run, but it's, it's actually a synthesis of about two or three events with a bit of speculation on the end um, that I'd like to tell you about. This was done... Well, shooting ahead in maths. Let's, let's take on maths. Well, let's make maths interesting and relevant, OK? So what's important... This is, this is unashamedly for boys, I'm afraid. It was actually done for a, uh, a group doing apprentices, apprenticeships in uh, mid-Wales. So it's, it's sort of teenage boys rather than girls, but you could do the same thing with other sort of subjects. If you're going to score a goal with a penalty, you've got to hit the ball right, you've got to put it in the right part of the net, you've got to get the height right, the trajectory right, and that's all the skills you need. You need to be good at all these things, and boys understand that. Um, it's actually not like that at all. It's all about parabolas. Um, parabolas and equations of motion are not usually the most interesting thing in the world, but I managed to get four guys really enjoying parabolas. First of all, I wanted to explain to them what a parabola was. So we went into the boys' changing rooms and with a length of pipe and we connected it to the tamp, tap and we squirted water from one sink to the next. And as you can see, it makes a beautiful parabola because it's got to, because it's behaving as, as a, an individual particle. So they then went off and measured the range that you get for various angles. Okay? And then we came back into the... Uh, the, the uh, sort of workshop where I was working, and I explained a bit about equations of motion and accelerations and things. And we set up a very quick little spreadsheet that I'd be pre-prepared. And I then made a prediction. I said, well, if you set your water flow to this particular angle, you will get this particular range. Don't believe you, they said. So they then went back into the training rooms and tried it for real, at which point we've justified the maths. Okay? The maths really does help you find out what that stream of water is going to do. Okay, so that's a little bit of IT and a bit of physics sort of sneaked in there, if we're careful. What I then went on to say is, actually, we're not going to do squirting water from uh, sink to sink, although that is great fun. Um, what we're going to do is some sort of target accuracy, um, kicking with robots, I've called, not walking with robots. Somebody else is doing that. This is kicking with robots. Um, and there's a whole range of different ways you could actually build something to kick, um, depending on the level of the children that you've got. There's a little Lego one, which has got a, a servo driving it, kicking a ping-pong ball. There's various. There's Meccano there, which is quite a rarity nowadays. And actually, at the technical college where I was doing this work, they, they welded up their own little bit of aluminium to make this one on the right. Um, you can spend a lot of time working on different mechanisms to get nice accelerations. You could just do it with a, with a catapult, an elastic band, and pull it back. But the important thing is that the competition at the end is target practice, but it's not target practice. I'm giving them no time to practice. Okay? You can always get something accurately lined up by having lots and lots of goes and adjusting it. The trick with this particular contest, in order to give the, va the value to the maths was to give them no chance to practice. So they were having to rely almost entirely on their mathematical predictions of what their device should, should do. So to do this, I just basically change the target, maybe give them a couple of goes on each just to let, so they can sort of hone it in a little bit. Um, and then they have to understand that the different trajectories move in different ways. And so those that have understood the maths well are accurately able to predict how to set up their kicker for the next round. Okay? So there you've got 
an example of maths giving you a competitive advantage. So, I've tried to summarise here. Um, Roboteers, like myself, well, I'm, I'm, I love developing different events that involve making things move and, and controlling stuff. Um, and I'm more than happy to help train teachers and deliver those events, that sort of thing. Teachers need to obviously identify the relevance of each of these parts and do it to the curriculum. A lot of the stuff I do tends to be in what they call enrichment activities. I do an after-school enrichment club at one school. Some of my stuff goes within the curriculum, um, but not all of it by any means. And it's a matter of bending, or at least making, a, making it obvious to teachers what sort of things can be made real by using robotics. Um, yes, uh, so teachers need to identify the relevance, and industry can make available lots of very cheap bits that we can use to make stuff. Um, so putting robotic events into design and technology is relatively straightforward and obvious, and I think best practice is that it's, be, it's beginning to happen. Um, using robotic competitions as a motivator in other subjects is um, interesting, and, and maybe he's just starting. It was interesting to hear about the, uh, the Roma this morning being used for, langu for language things. I, I would love to have you having to speak to a robot in French in order to program it. That would be a way of tying French into robotics. Um, we can discuss other ways of doing that. But it's all about multidisciplinary and blurring, blurring boundaries and cross-training and teachers' education, all sorts of things, um, and coming up with the specific events that suit. The idea of going away with teachers for two days to come up with an event that was relevant for their kids sounds wonderful. Um, so <laughs> I'd love to get involved with that. And that's really what I want to say, really. Um, any questions? Stunned silence. Any questions? There's, there's some brochures, or there will be brochures at the front here, which I'll pop down there. Okay, an issue that's come up uh, over and over again, and this, this was no surprise to me, was that of continuing professional development, the need for, for teachers to gain uh, training and, and support in introducing robots in the curriculum. Now, I did have uh, my friend and colleague Charles Denscombe lined up to speak about that. Charles is an advanced skills teacher in electronics there, and he was, as I mentioned right at the beginning, was one of the people that sort of sparked off a series of events that led to this workshop. And unfortunately, or maybe fortunately from his point of view, his wife had different ideas about what he should be doing right now, and she booked a holiday for him in Portugal, and I can tell it's well-deserved because he works very hard. But uh, Charles, is, um, a lot of the things he was going to say based on his experience from running uh, um, Marconi ECT and other training workshops for electronics teachers from all over the country um, have been distilled onto the DVD that's, that uh, I've included in your packs there. So that's come from Charles Denskin there. He produced those himself there. And that shows some of the work that he's done at Belvedere School in Shrewsbury and elsewhere. And the, um, most of the DVD are interviews with the, the uh, teachers taking those courses and saying the kind of things support there and the practical aspects they need to make electronics possible in schools. And a lot of those things apply equally well to robotics. 
there. In Charles's absence, I asked our next speaker, Rob Widger, to slant his uh, presentation towards teacher training, because I know he's done a lot of that with the Lego Mindstorms. There, Rob Widger used to work for Commotion and now works uh, for Lego Education or DACTA there, and uh, has a lot of experience there with the Mindstorms, which is almost 10 years old now, and uh, uh, without any further ado, I'm not quite sure where your presentation is here on the com computer. Okay. <laughs> Uh, like any good uh, trainer with robotics, I will come with my Duracell batteries. Um, hopefully you won't need them today. Um, I did show this, actually, some of you may not have seen it uh, this morning, uh, tea and coffee, but I was asked to show it in here. I've just got a little example here of robotics and where we're moving with, with Lego and some of the designs and some of the thinking that's going on. The new uh, Lego Mindstorms is Bluetooth compatible. And uh, some of the, uh, I don't know whether to call them geeks or not, um, over in Denmark have come up with some really nice nifty ideas. And hopefully this will work. Bluetooth technology, I don't know if you, some, some of you know it as very well. It can be a bit temperamental, but here we go. The expert that can use this robotic arm I'm about to show you is actually sitting in the audience. He's keeping a very low profile at the moment. Uh, but he did a fantastic job at BET. But... Um, Oh, we have got action. Here we are. I've got a robot arm here. It's linked up, like mimicking on my arm. I can move up and down. Is it going to move up and down for me? Yeah. And if I close my hands, I can grip. I'm using a tilt switch to move my robot arm up and move the arm down. If I turn, I've got a compass sensor on my waist. So if I actually turn, the robot arm turns with me. Sorts of things that we're seeing in, in science labs and laboratories. Um, now, I probably need binoculars to do this, but I'll have a go. Oh, oh, can someone give me some... Am I going left? Am I going right? Oh. Okay, I'll have one more go. I'll get a It's got a range of about 20 metres. Sorry, cameraman, I'm moving out of range. But it's got a range of about 20 metres. It's turning off for a moment. But what I've got here is I've got an NXT model um, that was basically used uh, as, as a robot arm that we built around someone's arm and uh, using the programming, link, link the two of them up. Um, it's a little bit jumpy because apparently one thing we did miss out is to do a bit of mathematical work to, to actually uh, average out the degrees as we turned. And that's one of the areas that we've got to, got to work on a little bit later on. Now, if I'd known I was a substitute for today, <laughs> but uh, it's good to be here. Um, I showed that in a class last week to year four children, and they were absolutely mesmerized by it. Um, I didn't tell them I was doing it. It was set in the corner of the room. I instantly got those uh, pupils' attention straight away. I also got the teachers smiling and laughing. And if you can get teachers who are not... Um, technologists or, or ICT literate to actually be smiling and laughing in a lesson. You're halfway to actually getting um, teachers confident using this stuff. One of the other little clips I will show you at the start. Um, let's see if it's going to work on here. Always helps if we do the right one, first of all.
I'll stop it there. Um, I worked with some year six children recently doing robo dance, and I certainly had the engagement of both boys and girls uh, with robotics. One of the things that often we get commented on is that uh, robots are used for boys. I heard it mentioned earlier as well. And if you, if you look around the room, um, the majority of us here are male, uh, and it's one of the things we are looking at is to actually find gender-neutral activities. We do have robo-soccer, which has been very, very popular, uh, but robo-dance is increasing popularity, and I know Ashley's done a lot of work with uh, robo-dance as part of RoboCup Junior. Um, just to give you a very brief where I come from, um, it looks really glamorous, but it's not really. I, for the first nine months of my job at DACTA, um, they gave me an NXT and they said, learn it. Um, that was my brief. I spent nine months playing with it at home, which my children thought was fantastic. Uh, the downshot was then I had to train all our dealers to actually use it. Um, for, unfortunately, I never got to travel to any of the countries that were involved. I had to be in one place and everyone came to me. So although it looks really glamorous, it wasn't at all. Um, before that, I was a, a work for commotion. Um, selling uh, the RCX as it was. And prior to that, I was an LEA consultant with Hertfordshire LEA. Um, and we went around, pr- we can't promote, but we did go around using Lego Mindstorms as, as one of our op- alternative options for control technology. Prior to that, I was a Key Stage 2 teacher, and um, I actually used the um, RCX, the, the, the predecessor in my class, Year 5 children, it's about nine years ago now long time ago. Um, having worked on Lego Mindstorms for nine months solidly and thinking I knew everything, um, I went to do some training with a school in Belgium with teachers and pupils and got asked some very challenging questions from some 15-year-old uh, pupils in, in, in the session. And very humbling experience to have a 15-year-old child sitting across the other side of the room talking better English than I can, actually explaining the answer that I didn't know. And um, once upon a time, we were the front of all knowledge. I can remember my teachers at school, I thought they knew everything. Okay, I had no, um, I had no place to go and, and find out elsewhere, find out otherwise. This particular boy, 15-year-old Belgian child, had wanted to find out a problem or a solution to a motor and why it was behaving in such a way. He got on the internet, he looked at the various sites, websites, blogs to do with the NXT, found a geek in America, emailed the geek in America, got the information back and had an answer for, for not just his teacher but for me as well. It was a very humbling experience. And, uh, you know, we are no longer, we live in a world where there is information all around us, it's growing every day. And uh, I think one of our fears as teachers sometimes is that, especially myself, is uh, often, you know, are we being left behind in some cases? Um, I consider myself or thought myself very technological. I haven't got a Hoover robot that goes around um, my house cleaning. Is there one person? Who was the one person earlier that put their hand up? Did somebody put their hand up? One person, I think, did. Apparently, the NXT, if you go on to uh, YouTube... They have designed a carpet sweeper on YouTube that will go round and actually sweep up laminate wood floors. I haven't tried that one yet. Um, so yes, a front of all knowledge. Um, one of the things that uh, that 
I'll share with you was I liked my pupils when I was teaching. This was nine years ago. One of my, or oh, a little, quick little story. I hated RE. wasn't very good at it. And, uh, you know, I was teaching it in an area where there were lots of different religions in my classroom. They, some of those children knew 10, 100 times more than what I knew. So why not use them? Why not bring upon their expertise? And uh, I did just that. Word of warning, though, I had one particular child, Fraser. I better not mention his surname. This was 10 years ago. I will never forget this child's face or name, even though I've been out of education for so long. Um, he did the most wonderful presentation on Judaism, stuff I never knew. The children were in awe. He was in awe. He was so chuffed that he was up at the front. He was talking about what he knew. And then when it came to question time, he answered lots of questions, and he said to me, Mr. Widger, can I ask you a question? I said, yes, Fraser, go ahead. He said, Mr. Widger, could you explain to the class what a circumcision is? And at that point, I I backed away. (laughs) A word of warning. (laughs) What I'm trying to say is that, you know, children out there, they absorb information, they learn things at such an incredible rate, and, and I would suggest that they... They are a, a, a serious tap for, for, for our training needs and uh, for, for the way we move forward. Um, got some video, uh, some pictures here, recent pictures taken in class. Um, people engaging in using NXT. I love this one. This child's concentration on the robot that's moving around the course. You know, is it going to succeed or is it not? And this one where, where the boy has just realised he's so close but yet just not close enough, and the expression on his face. And, um, you know, we've got to make sure that these expressions, these emotions, these feelings, we continue giving them these opportunities. I've got a picture of some group work going on there. (laughs) That was a stage shot. Well, it was. They knew they were being photographed. So it was a stage shot. The one that interests me is the one in the blurred vision at the top. So in-depth in concentration on what he's doing. He's not looking at my camera. He's looking at what he's meant to be doing, which was driving a course, uh, a buggy round a course and parking it. Year seven children. Now, just a question, and certainly we talk about it at the end. You know, are we, is it our job to learn as much skills and knowledge to be the key to robotics? Or, or is it, are we, are we helping children learn about robotics? Do we need to know everything, is the question. So many times I've been out on the road, and I tried totting up yesterday just how many schools, and I didn't ask Dave over there how many schools he's been in as well, but it's a lot of schools, uh, how many schools have been in. Um, I don't know everything. I know a lot. I don't know everything. The children gauge so much and get so much out of going away and finding out something I don't know. And it helps me as well. The Lego solution, or those, just a quick hand, how many people here um, have have, uh, seen the Lego hardware before? um, Seen it before? Show of hands? Okay. And the Lego software? Okay, okay, thanks a lot. Okay, so most of us know it's all um, very much picture-based. This is a photograph taken from one of the training sessions abroad, 
Half that group couldn't speak English. They all went away being able to carry out the first um, section or the first palette of programming tools because it's picture-based. It did help having some Lego items there to give away as well. It kept the concentration going. Um, now, I'm only talking from experience and going to many schools. Um, I, am, I didn't put in there when I worked at uh, various LEAs, but um, I have to admit to being one of those trainers that tried to deliver um, NAFNOF. Um, how many... <laughs> How many people here have uh, experienced the NOF training? Uh, okay, a few. Okay, the NOF training, the, gov- the government um, asking us to go in and train teachers on how to raise skill levels for basic ICT computing. Um, yes, much more. I'll move on from there. Um, the sorts of responses I, use, I still get when I go into training sessions now. I hate Lego. They walk in. Now, typically, a Lego training session has been arranged by the ICT coordinator or the DMT coordinator or somebody that's worried that they're going to get um, criticised from the LA for not doing control. And we go in to do a, a training session with the staff. And I actually oh, God, I hate Lego as they've walked in the room. You know, you think, my word, what's this training session going to be like? Um, too many bits. Okay, too many, I see people nodding. Is it, Sheila, it's right, isn't it? People do say that. Um, it's for boys. Um, is it DTICT? Is it science? All those, I have marking to do. I mean, I get all sorts of questions. Typically, um, once they've played with the hardware, once they've played with the software, depending on which software you use at your particular key stage, you know, I can do this. I can do this. Um, once you've had a go at it. It's the only training session. I, I do Word courses and Excel courses, various, throughout, throughout my career. It's the only training session where I actually have had to ask teachers to go home at an end of a, a staff meeting. Because once they get into it, actually, it's not that difficult. It's not that difficult. Certainly with the training... I could teach an adult. I went in and did a training session with year six children, year five and year six, uh, demo lesson. They completed the QCA within about um, about 15 minutes of having had been shown how to use the software and use the hardware. Um, doing it with teachers, it's probably about an hour and 15 minutes generally, you know, a little bit longer. But uh, that's just us as adults, isn't it? We, we do take a little bit longer to learn than, than, than the children we're teaching. Um, generally, though, I like a day at least. And I, I, I so support what was being said earlier. You know, give these teachers a couple of days just to actually, you know, get used to the products, get used to the software they've chosen and actually, you know, get to grips with it and actually start thinking about the sorts of activities that they're going to do. And I like this whole idea of um, Dave up there talking about, you know, teachers creating the resources rather than just being given stuff that most teachers will change anyway because it doesn't actually necessarily support their classroom needs. And this was the comment I had recently working in a secondary school um, with a teacher we did the training. He fed back to me a few weeks later, and uh, he went off to get the manual. He came back, and the children were already programming it to move, uh, move uh, around the room. 
I put up a few types of teacher training that I've done. Um, school inset, whole day, always good fun, lots of robots in, lots of playtime. Staff meetings, short, snappy, yes. The one, well, the two for me that really make the difference is doing the in-class demos. It's having the whole class learning, having the teacher learning as well with somebody that knows about the software in depth and the hardware in depth. Because you're going to get half a dozen pupils, three at least, that are actually going to fly with this so quickly that you've got those three pupils throughout the... If you start them in year seven, you've got them for five years. You've got experts. The biggest concern I have in teach training at the moment, and this happened at my school when I left to join Hertfordshire, is that we had great kit. We had lots of kit. We had an ICT room. As soon as I left, it stopped. And that is one of the biggest worries I have. I went into a secondary school a month ago. They called me in. There's Lego products in our cupboard. Can you explain what they do? And I went in. There were 30 RCX bricks in a cupboard. There was enough Lego. I've, it, it was obscene. But the, I, the DT coordinator had left the school, and it got put away, and it had sat in the cupboard for three years. Teach training is key. But also, I think, it's getting the children involved as well. So that actually, if a teacher does move on and you know, he or she gets a promotion, great. You know, that when they leave that school, they don't leave um, a hole in the knowledge. And to me, that is a, is a, is a, real, a real key issue. LEA courses as well. The LEA, LEAs, or LAs now, that offer courses on, you know, specific um, robotic stuff. Um, getting everybody together. I know one LEA that uh, supplies a kit with every, on every course. The course is a little bit more expensive, but you walk away with a kit at the end of the day. So that it's not sit three weeks until you've ordered it and had it delivered before you actually know what you're doing. You can go back and play with it straight away. I've got a little video clip. I'll, I'll move on. I'll come back to it. Now, one of the things, and we saw it in the last uh, the, the TEP dem uh, demonstration, Lego going right across all the key stages. We now have one product, the NXT. Um, the other thing is teachers really... Name the character. Name the film, name the character. Anybody, what's it look like? Any idea? Short Circuit. Who's the character in Short Circuit? Johnny Five. Okay. The children, it goes over their heads. Okay, we, we can accept that. Okay. Um, teachers... Whenever you walk in, you get, Johnny Five. Yes, instant. You know, again, you've suddenly built up. You've built the bridges. You've not broken them down because you've got something out that they don't like. They've identified. Yeah. And uh, one of the things, is, this has character. That Sony one has character. These things have character. They're easier to people to pick up and start using. This piece of hardware will go through all key stages. And I'll very quickly just flick through just some of the bits of software that are around. Um, too simple, and this comes back to something Torben said earlier. Um, if you're wanting changes to happen with Lego, it's best to go through, um, send the ideas first through to us at DACTA. Um, if it's an idea that we can push through, then we can. Um, generally, Lego do get very frightened if, if you come with some ideas and, and they see it could be threatening. Um, we presented a, a business case to them that too simple, actually, these robots can go down into key stage one and be used with, with a piece of software that's very simple to use. Hence, Too Simple came up and said, we can do something like this. This had never got into the Key Stage 1 market, or any of its predecessors, other than Duplay. 
This is now sitting in more and more infant departments with the too simple software. Um, so one piece of hardware, you choose the software to fit your particular, your, your particular needs. Um, we've got a few clips of uh, um, too simple and traffic lights. We've got a little bit of just one, one button programming. The other interesting thing, they've got a mimic on screen or a simulation as well as it when it's connected moving as well. We've got a little flowchart type activity, logo as well. And then moving into Mindstorms, Too Simple have actually sort of done some block programming as well. At Key Stage 2, we've got the Mindstorms. And Key Stage 3, this is Car Park Barrier. Any of you want to see it in action, um, come see me after the, the, the talks. That's a Car Park Barrier in action, all done in pictures. Moving on away from the Lego software, there's something out there called Robot C, which if you're a text-based fan is there as well. Um, I'm not a programmer of Microsoft Robotics Studio. So I tried, I failed, I admit it, I'm big enough to do that, okay? Um, but it's out there, you can program. And somebody here is from Microsoft who knows it very well. You'll see there is a robot over by the Microsoft stand. You can program in it. And then finally, um, also LabVIEW as well, which is the makers of the Lego software, um, National Instruments, where you can program the NXT in that as well. There's lots of resource books out there. Um, I tend to rather do the training first. There's lots of teacher guides as well. And um, I'm going to ask you, everyone here a question, actually. Um, we get a lot of books from America, Lego books, Lego NXT books and Lego RCX books, and also from the Far East. Um, is it necessary, someone can shout out and ask, is it necessarily to make it UK curriculum orientated to bring it into, into the market or just bring the books in as they are and gauge the ideas from those books in those curriculums abroad? Just bring them in. Yeah. But match it as well. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you. The other thing is websites. Okay, there's a wealth of information on various websites. LegoEngineering.com, huge website, lots of ideas, build guides, sample programming um, out there. Real life solutions. Okay. The other big thing that Lego have been working with is third party sensors. The compass sensor you saw over there and the tilt switch is made by a third party company called High Technic. Um, they produce other things, color sensor to, to recognize real life colors, developing a PI, PIR sensor. Um, one company's working on GPS, localized GPS as well for these things. There's a lot going on. Because Lego, from the outset with this product, has made it all open source. So companies can design their own hardware, their own sensors, um, to, actually, to actually add on here. And one of the things that uh, I did say, and it's not another question, you know, are we looking for a champion as well? Are we looking for a figurehead that can actually raise the profile? I'm not saying Jamie Oliver. Um, but, you know, are we looking for somebody to actually, you know, shout the voice for us? Um, I'll, I'll finish this part of the presentation just to say, you know, 
I, we were at Wembley Stadium doing some robo soccer just before Christmas. Stuart Pearce was there. Absolutely loved the robo soccer. Um, he actually thought some of them could take the place of the current England team, who haven't actually been particularly playing very well. Um, and he actually likened that particular robot to Theo Walcott, who actually sprinted down the pitch so quickly. Um, but the question is, do we need a, a somebody, you know, a famous face that uh, teachers and pupils can engage with when it, com- when it comes to robotics? There might be somebody already out there. Going on to uh, what David just said, and um, I won't spend too long on this, take up too much time, but we are trialling in the UK um, over the next six months, I would say, the idea concept of Lego Education Centre. The other thing I think is really important, and this is from a Lego point of view, is that this fits into a very small part of the curriculum. Um, where else will it fit in? Well, we know, and I've spoken to David and Torben about the, the links in, in, in science, and there are links in science. Um, Lego Education Centre has been hugely popular in Scandinavia, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, because they actually take a whole school approach to three Lego kits, one based around science, one based around uh, NXT, and one based around renewable energy. So looking at uh, solar panels, looking at uh, wind energy. Um, It's a whole school approach, and it's been very successful. We're seeing uh, whole schemes of work written and linked and integrated between uh, not just the science curriculum and the technology curriculum and the ICT curriculum, but um, also with maths as well. It's being linked in with maths, with the problem-solving side. And one of the things we want to do at DACTA is bring that concept over to the UK. Um, I don't want to say too much, but if there are schools, there are people here that think they know of schools that would be interested in we are looking for pilot schools to actually have a go at this concept. Um, I just flick through. Basically, it's a large table the size of first leg of league map, dedicated, um, motorised lighting, um, comes with 45 Lego sets in uh, science, as I say, science, technology and uh, uh, NXT. Um, it comes with a Scandinavian curriculum that needs looking at, adapting, and uh, making UK orientated. And uh, if anybody is interested, um, we'd like to hear from you. And I think I will stop there on that point. Any questions? Yeah, well, it depends where it's used. In, in some places in Scandinavia, it's one school, and uh, whether that's um, primary or secondary, there are centres where children come and visit. Um, I see it being potentially a secondary school product where the local primaries can come in and use the resources, but also for things like city learning centres and set points. Um, it's a, a large expense uh, investment, and it's expense, I won't, I won't deny that, um, but it's a way of actually being able to tackle the whole, whole class issue um, using uh, an approach like LEGO, like LEGO has. Anyone wants to know more info on that, I do have a PowerPoint to send them. They can have a look, and, and we can chat uh, over coffee or after, after the actual sessions. Okay. Right, we're moving into the last session for this afternoon. We have two speakers lined up. First is John Dobson of Matrix Multimedia. I'll leave John to introduce himself there and uh, 
He'll be followed by Geoffrey Johnson of the Open University talking about uh, the, the history of really where we got to today with the RoboFest and RoboCup Junior and what, what our hopes and plans are for the future. Thank you. Right, I'm here to tell you about a product that uh, we've made called Formula Flow Code. And I hope this doesn't come across as a, a sales pitch. This is a story about what we've done, why we've done it, um, and perhaps people here, both teachers and vendors, can take something from that. The product's called Formula Flow Code. We've got quite a successful graphical programming tool for uh, microcontrollers called Flow Code. And, of course, the title Formula Flow Code is, is a, a bit of a take on the Formula Ford challenge, where each driver has the same kind of car, and it therefore is down to the skill of the driver rather than the um, performance of the car. And the idea behind Formula Flow Code is every student's got the same chassis, and it's down to their skills of programmer uh, in terms of uh, where they get to. So I'm John Dobson. Uh, the company is called Matrix Multimedia. Many of you won't uh, have come across us. We work mostly in further and higher education. Um, you may have heard of some of our brands, Flowcode, eBlocks, and uh, here's a product that uh, we've made for commotion called Coco. And you may have come across Coco. It's a um, flow charting and text-based uh, control piece of software for Key Stage 2, 3, and 4. Our most successful products are things called eBlocks. And eBlocks are a range of small circuit boards which snap together to make electronic systems. And there are about uh, 40 to 45 of these circuit boards. And you can make quite complex electronic systems from them. Here's an example of a fully working mobile phone. And this is used in colleges and universities to teach uh, electronic engineering undergraduates how modems work. So it's, it's quite sort of high level. And... One of the reasons for doing this robot chassis is we believe that the software we've made was applicable to a lower age range. Um, the way this came about was I went to a MicroMouse competition at the University of Central England in uh, 2006, and I was really impressed by this competition. I think it's a very underutilized thing in the UK, and it's a, it's a great tool, I thought, for motivating students for teaching more about technology. Um, so we went to that uh, competition. Uh, by December 2006, we had a, a design that was finished, and this was done in conjunction with a teacher from Belgium who was working for the Belgian Ministry of Education to reformulate their technology and electronics course. So we had the opportunity to work with some technology and electronics teachers from outside of the UK in doing this. Um, we started manufacturing in, in about March 2007, and since then we've managed to sell quite a lot of them in various markets all over the world, but uh, at the moment we haven't sold very many of them in the UK. Um, perhaps we'll talk about why the UK will be tough later on. eBlocks is a great product for learning at 16 and above, maybe even 18 and above. Um, it's very sophisticated, and it allows a massive range of products uh, to be made from eBlocks but for schools, we felt that that kind of approach of just a development board or blocks of electronics was a little dry. Um, whereas robotics is a, a fantastic way to teach technology and electronics just because it's so much more motivating. And so we, we felt that um, Formula Flow Code would only be a school's product. 
We, we mostly work in FE and HE, and we've suffered a great deal in the UK. I don't know if you're aware, but the number of students who, have, uh, who take electronic engineering as a subject at university level has fallen by 50% over the last five years. And as somebody who's supplying these customers, this has given us a bit of a shock. And when we go round to universities, you tend to find some departments have quite a lot of students and other departments have almost none and are about to go under. And you tend to find that the departments who have quite a lot of students are those that have some kind of outreach program that get into schools and run a two-hour course or a, a day session to try and get students of technology interested in electronics. And another reason for doing Formula Flow Code for us was to be able to provide our university customers with a tool they could use in this kind of outreach program. And uh, that's happening successfully in, in, a, in a few universities at the moment. So why Formula Flow Code? Why robotics? Well, eBlocks is too sophisticated. Uh, robotics is motivating. The MicroMouse competition is fantastic. We had an opportunity to work with the Belgian government, who stipulated that the cost of this product had to be 100 euros, um, which for us was a bit of a challenge, because it meant we had to commit to making quite a large number of them. And the great thing about this kind of product is it starts really simple, uh, and it never finishes. There are PhD students who try and solve micromouse mazes and things like that. Let's have some details of the hardware then. The, the brains of the uh, robot is a, a PIC Micro. It's an 18 series PIC Micro. It's that large 40 pin chip in the center there. And the technology of microcontrollers is changing quite a lot. These microcontrollers now have a USB port. So you no longer need a, a, a programmer. You just plug them straight into your USB lead. And that's a, a big advantage in terms of cost. Um, it's got a reset switch. I don't know if I can... Oh, yes, I can. Um, so there, there's the, the pick, USB, reset switch, uh, programming light. Um, it'll supply 5 volts externally. You'll see why in a minute. Power switch. It's got a plastic chassis. This is a standard off-the-shelf chassis um, from a company called Micro Robot in Korea. The, interestingly, the electronics is made in China. The plastic is made in Korea. And quite a few of them now go back to both Korea and China. Um, it's got a motor driver chip. My mouse has gone somewhere. Item number eight there is a motor driver chip. Um, it has a microphone with a sound level potentiometer. Um, a few switches on the left and right for user-defined uh, programs. It has three distance sensors, front, left, and right, and underneath are the, the transmitters. Sensors on the top, transmitters on the bottom. Um, got a simple light sensor for doing various uh, bits of analog work. It's got a line-following circuit board, eight user-defined LEDs, a small loudspeaker, uh, and an eBlocks expansion socket. Now, this was designed by the Belgian teacher, and each of those sensors uh, and input systems has been designed around a particular curriculum-based exercise. Um, and there's quite a lot of electronics um, on that product. And actually, it, it can be used for very sophisticated exercises as well as for simple exercises. What you're able to do with, with eBlocks is you can expand it by adding displays, by adding a ZigBee transceiver, by adding a GPS unit. Um, 
So it doesn't just stop with that particular chassis. You can do quite a lot of additional, uh, much more complicated work, which, which probably isn't relevant for schools. We have a graphical programming language, and um, this is not too dissimilar to other graphical programming languages on the market. This one happens to produce native hex, so it works with any chip from the particular vendor. And we support three different types of microcontroller, PIC, AVR, and ARM. And the ARM is a, is a very interesting change in this market. Um, for the same cost as a 40-pin PIC, you can now have a 60-pin ARM that has a 32-bit processor with 128K of RAM, 32K of ROM, full floating point, um, and it's capable of doing a massive number of things. And that has some capabilities of, of changing the way that this market works. Flow codes are used by quite a lot of people. It's used by people in industry as well as by people in education. And it's quite expensive. Uh, a site license currently is £700. And so because of that, we've made a free version available to, to schools. Uh, it produces hex. It's fully functional. And it's limited, as you can see there, to about 2K of ROM. It's 2K of code size, and there won't be that many projects based on this buggy or on, on picks in schools which will exceed that. So with this chassis, there's all the software provided as well. And there you can see a, a screen image of, of, uh, of flow code. Uh, there's, there's all the different types of icon, uh, sorry, of flow chart symbols there. You drag and drop them onto the screen, double-click, enter the properties, and so on. There's a full simulator in here as well, so it'll simulate your project. And across the top, you can see some of the components that you can drag onto the workspace. So we can drag on displays, potentiometers, uh, input-output devices. And they start fairly simple with lights and switches, but work up through to Internet components, uh, various different serial communication components, keypads, Zigbee modules, color LCD modules, and so on. With the Belgian government, we, or the Ministry of Education, we were given a bit of a challenge, and their curriculum is very different to ours. They seem to do an awful lot more electronics between 14 to 16 than we do, and they wanted a product that wasn't just electronics, but, want, but bridged the gap between, say, a 13-year-old student's experience of a technology product like Lego and a real electronic product. Um, like this Formula Flow Code robot. And with our experience from making Cocoa, what we were able to do for them was provide um, a, a suite of off-the-shelf components where students can initially perform all of the exercises around the Formula Flow Code robot without having any actual knowledge of um, a PIC micro. So, for example... If you were programming a PIC in a robotics context, you might say, well, the left-hand motor is connected to C1, which is the second bit of port C on a microcontroller, and in order to adjust the speed, you'd use to need, you need to use pulse width modulation to, and so on. And you'd, you'd lose quite a number of students at that point. What we're able to do with Formula Flow Code is drag on a macro onto the workspace and say, Formula Flow Code... Um, in this case, spin right at a rate of 200. And so this allowed us to greatly simplify the um, programming of the buggy for the initial period where students um, 
work with it to solve these exercises. And you can see here, these are all the different macros that we provide for the buggy. So you can make, you can say, go forward, go, go backwards, stop, spin left, spin right, turn light on, get the, set, get the status of a sensor and so on. And for Formula Flow Code, we actually also made a, a small simulation which appears inside the, the, the software that allows students to see all of this happening as well. And what uh, we, we were then able to do was to say, okay, once you've gone through that first six or seven hours using the product, then we can go back and do all the exercises again, but in an electronics context. You've now learned about the programming. Now let's look at what a port is and what a chip is and so on. So we were able we hope, to bridge this gap between technology and electronics by using some custom software for the robot itself. Um, there is a line follower, and that's just an example. That's, that's the complete program. Um, it's sort of ten icons long, which allows you to uh, get the robot to, to follow this kind of uh, line. With the product, then, we, we produce uh, for the UK free um, in order to allow universities to liaise with schools. There's a 12-page sort of starter guide which covers around two to three hours' work. Um, two to eight hours' work, sorry. There, there is also, for schools in Belgium and in Germany, a book which covers uh, the use of this product at the age of 14, and that contains about 50 hours' work. And it's really interesting to see how technical it is. Um, they go into the characteristics of the light sensor in quite some detail, for example, and have quite a lot of exercises about understanding sensors using graphs. And, you know, it's, it's something that, that is reasonably sophisticated. Um, so books are now available in, in, in German and Dutch and, well, maybe English one day. The, we also try to come up with some jazzy names for all of the exercises in this. So, for example, we've got uh, an exercise called Follow My Line, Robopop. You can make the, the robot play a tune and also dance a bit like a, a, a Lego uh, system. Uh, there's one called I Can See the Light, and maybe we can see that working in a minute. Um, and the exercise has progressed to be more and more difficult. And here you can see students um, tackling a, a typical micro-mouse maze called a lefty. There's a strategy where just by following the left-hand wall, you can solve quite a large range of mazes just using one distance sensor. Another one, and this is, this is the great thing about the MicroMouse competition or the suite of competitions, it's really well thought out in terms of uh, the events students go through. And this is one um, called a drag race where you basically have a seven-meter line and students have to just race from one end of the uh, line to the other. And to do it badly is very easy, but to do it well requires quite a lot of expertise. What you have to do is the, the motors on the formula flow code are actually run at different powers slightly because it's not an expensive chassis. So you actually, in order to do this well, you have to calibrate the motors, run one at, say, 95% and the other at 100%, and only then will it go in a straight line. Um, and that's another example of, of this exercise. It's dead simple initially for the students, but to do it well requires quite a lot of expertise. Other exercises is Daytona 5, just to race around a maze five times as quickly as possible. And then we have Pimp My Ride. So the idea here is that, again, the Belgian syllabus is interesting. It's a, it's a combined mechanical and electrical uh, syllabus. And 
in the second year of use, the students have to do more mechanics and they actually have to build a chassis for this, um, this electronic um, circuit board. Uh, and that's an example of the, the circuit board is designed so it actually will control quite a lot of other robotic systems as well. That's actually a Tamiya chassis, um, and we're hoping to build on that with a little GPS board so that we can do some exercises outside. To do full maze solving um, requires a totally different chassis. Full maze solving, uh, or for full maze solving, you need the robot to plot where it's been. So it, you need to... Um, monitor the number of revolutions that each wheel has made so that the robot knows exactly where it is and um, it draws an internal map of the, the maze and then it's tasked with going from the beginning of the maze to the centre of the maze as fast as possible. And this, this really is, is far too difficult for, for schools, probably far too difficult for many undergraduate courses or far too time-consuming for un undergraduate courses. Uh, and so to do that kind of thing, you, you need a, a different chassis. Okay, if we can, let's try and get a video just to show you it working. Okay, that's me done. Any questions? It's very, inter very interesting to hear about the arm. Uh, could you enlarge on that, please, instead of using a pick, using an arm as a possibility in the future? Um... Okay, the, uh, a PIC Micro is an 8-bit device, which means it's not very powerful. An ARM is a 32-bit device, which means it's very, very powerful. And ARMs work at 1.5 volts internally rather than 5 volts. And the cost of silicon is dictated by the area that the chip occupies. If it works at 1.5 volts, it uses less power, so it therefore can be designed with less silicon. So it's really interesting that ARMs are now the same price as PICs. That's the really interesting about them, and that's the reason why. Um, 
We have a graphical programming language. It works with a range of microcontrollers. An ARM is one of the microcontrollers it works with. If you write a program for a PIC in flow code, you can just run the same program on an ARM. So the, you're all familiar with writing programs in flowcharts, flow so now you can use the power of the ARM in your flowchart programs. It's, uh, so it's odd that this technology has come about, but actually it's dead easy to use at one level. There is a, there is a problem with ARMs, and this is with, with the problem with more sophisticated chips as a whole is that they're not designed for, for people like, uh, like us, for hobbyists, for small companies and for education. And they use horrible packaging. So they use enormous or 64 pin or leg uh, packages that are all surface mounting. So there is a problem in using them in that sense. And we, we have a few ideas about how to get around that. Um, so whilst it's only three pounds to you, the trouble is as a vendor of these chips to make it suitable for use in this market as a general electronics component, I have to put it onto a small circuit board and then have some kind of maybe a USB connector. So by the time I finished it to you, it will be about 15 pounds. Um, but it does open up the possibilities of doing all sorts of project boards. Again, systems like that, that then wouldn't be that much more expensive than the current project boards in the market. Is that too much? much. Okay, thank you. If there are any more questions, we can catch John at the end. Um, trying to keep the schedule. Our final speaker now is Jeff Johnson, and I'll leave Jeff to introduce himself. It's a great pleasure for me, somewhat late in the day, to, to welcome you all here and welcome the people who have already gone, uh, because we do like having you very much, uh, and we find these days absolutely fascinating. We like to hear what you have to say and to discuss things with us. Um, I'm going to uh, tell you a bit about the history of robotics and robotics education in the Open University, uh, which actually goes back a surprisingly long time, I realized, when I started to make this presentation. Um, some of the dates are a bit sort of mixed up, so if you're ever involved in this story and you find that the chronology is wrong, then uh, please forgive me because, uh, uh, you know, your, your life suddenly merges into one sort of blur at a certain age. Um, so nearly there. Okay, so uh, I'm, I'm absolutely delighted that the, the world has changed and, and people are seriously talking about uh, emb embedding robotics in the curriculum and beginning to do things about it. That, I think, is, is wonderful. That we've been thinking about uh, children and robotics, children and technical education for uh, eight or nine years, nearly a decade now. Um, it's always seemed to us almost self-evident that robotics has... Uh, an enormous motivating power to, uh, for, for children, uh, or should I say for, uh, for students. Um, and uh, so now something is really beginning to happen. So um, for us, I'm not, again, I'm not sure if this chronology is quite right, but uh, in the 1990s, we had a course on mechatronics called Designing 
intelligent machines. In fact, it was a course on robotics, but uh, uh, on this course we had a couple of textbooks. We had uh, an OU-designed Lego robot, which actually was uh, contemporary with the, the Mindstorms de development, um, that we had something called Smart Lab, which was a huge software package involving control search, neural networks, rule-based systems, blackboard systems, fuzzy logic, vision, and other stuff I've forgotten about. And I see John Rosewell in the audience who wrote some of that, <laughs> as did many others. Um, this was a, a very popular course, enormously popular course, with uh, our adult students uh, attracted um, very many of them each year, and they liked the robot uh, very much that for me, I got into this um, robot soccer and, uh, and ultimately RoboCup Junior through a connection with the Santa Fe Institute. So John Casty, who was at that time at the Santa Fe Institute, was the, the referee for some peculiar competition called Robot Soccer run by an organization called FIRA uh, in Korea. And so he duly refereed that, and when I went to visit Santa Fe, he said to me, well, you people at the Open University do robotics, why don't you try robot soccer? And the rest is uh, history, so to speak. So we went to uh, Korea in 1997, got involved in that. At the same time, there's a lot of other things going on. So you may, many of you will know these sort of parallel stories too, but uh, Henrik Lund, who's been an enormous force in, in robotics and robotics education, was at that time the, the Lego professor, so to speak, at Aarhus University in Denmark. Uh, Aarhus, I believe, is close to where Lego is, uh, is made, and so they were actually had a collaboration uh, with him. And Henrik has done a lot of really quite extraordinary things. He's, he's been uh, to a couple of our meetings here at the Open University and told us what he does. And he has a very refreshing uh, view of uh, the use of robots with children, very creative. And uh, it was uh, Henrik's idea, Henrik and Luigi Pagliani, who had the idea of... Um, uh, transposing the RoboCup competition, which is a grown-up uh, robot competition, soccer competition, and trying to take it to children. Um, well, that's a very interesting thing to do because, of course, uh, RoboCup itself is incredibly demanding. You've got all the engineering disciplines there um, at all levels, and that challenges the best engineering groups in the world. And the mission of RoboCup um, itself is to have a team of humanoid robots beat the world champion soccer players by 2050. And it doesn't take much thinking to realise that most of us, well, some of us won't be around in 2050, and we have to educate a new generation of engineers to do that. So the RoboCup mission uh, took on RoboCup Junior seriously to try and, uh, uh, and get some education in, in, for, for young people. Um, they started out, they had a competition in Amsterdam in, uh, I think it was about 1999. I went to that. It was very interesting. It was uh, full of energy and uh, creativity, as, as is uh, very common. And it began to get things going. And then in another parallel development, in 1999, some Japanese visitors came to the Open University and they told me that uh, in Japan, kids are not interested in technology anymore and how terrible that is and how they wanted to motivate them and put the twinkle back in their eyes. And so they were setting up this thing called Robofesta, since uh, in Japan they did know that robot competitions actually are very exciting for, for young people. So they asked me to be the, the British uh, representative of Robofesta, which I said I would, 
and I knew at the time that life would never be the same again, and it's not been. And uh, so that's how it kind of began. So in 2000, Henrik Lund went to Japan, and he uh, negotiated with a company called Ellicott these uh, these soccer balls, which many of you will know, these um, uh, infrared balls, which make uh, this kind of robot competition accessible to, uh, to to young people at a price that they can actually afford since at that time cameras were completely out of the question and other things too. And this um, soccer game has a, a long history. I'm sure many of you have been involved in it, and it certainly does uh, motivate uh, children, as some of the earlier um, talks have said. So it really does put the twinkle in their eyes. The problem with um, Robo Soccer is, of course, it's, it's rather male-oriented. So one of the really great things that uh, Henrik Lund did was to investigate um, robotic activities that might interest um, not just boys but girls too. And so he invented the, uh, the RoboCup Junior Dance Competition. And um, I have, that's, of course, my own favourite. I've been involved that, with that for a long time. Um, and uh, that motivates, actually, both boys and girls, and so you get mixed teams, and it's absolutely great. It really does great stuff. Um, in 2000... Uh, there was the first formal RoboCup Junior competition in Melbourne, which I happened to go to. And again, it was absolutely marvellous. We had this uh, RoboCup dance and the kids were uh, programming their robots. They were decorating their robots and they were de- decorating themselves and they were dancing with their robots. And clearly something very interesting was happening here, that these kids were, were really uh, engaging. Um, again, I'm not quite sure of the chronology, but um, somehow or another we took a team, these two young people who happened to be the children from one of the OU academics um, and they built this uh, this robot which had uh, diaphanous wings and uh, other things. So the, the girl was the designer and the boy was the engineer and they put this thing together and to my astonishment they, they won the RoboCup Junior competition in, in Seattle. Um, Around that time, again, not quite sure when, we, uh, Tony Hurst and I, I'm not sure if Tony's here today, but uh, we ran a competition with Blue Peter, uh, and we challenged the kids to design a robot. So it was a paper competition. And we said that they had to, um, they had to tell us what it was supposed to do. So that was some idea of a specification, and they had to tell us how it was going to do it. So some idea of analysis, and of course they had to, to draw it, so they had to represent it and explain the the technical uh, aspects of it. Uh, it was an absolutely marvellous competition. We had uh, 32,000 entries, which was the, the second biggest that Blue Peter had ever had. The, the biggest was to do with some uh, football competition, not surprisingly. I expect we got more girls. Uh, interestingly enough, the, uh, the entry on this was more, more or less even, boys and girls. So this competition really did fire up everybody. This, um, this one here is a winning, uh, one of the winners, which is a robot caterpillar, uh, which was designed by a boy of, I think, six or seven. And when I asked him why he um, had a robot caterpillar, he said he likes caterpillars, which is a good idea. Um, so we had all kinds of designs. We had um, 30,000 children. I think from looking through many of these, there were quite a lot of enthusiastic parents had put in entries too on behalf of their children, um, which we uh, kind of filtered out. Um, but there were a lot of interesting... So here you had a robot nurse, uh, robot mums, of course, which are actually excellent for tidying up after you and cooking your stuff and looking after you. 
and quite a number of robot teachers um, who invariably had eyes in the back of their heads. So watch out. Uh, and um, we, th- we, the prize for this competition was to take um, the children and their parents to, to Tokyo and um, a robot in Yokohama. And I have to say, it's one of the most difficult things I ever did, being a travel agent for all those children in Japan. is really quite something. Uh, but we survived. <coughs> So one of the nice things about being involved in, uh, in Robofesta and Robocup Junior is that we've got um, a really tremendous number of great people have come and helped us over the years. Uh, we held the Robocup Junior competitions at Bletchley Park, which of course is very exciting because of its associations with uh, Enigma and Alan Turing. And one of the people who came one year and gave us an incredibly good lecture was uh, Steve Grand, who is the creator of this uh, this robot called Lucy, which is an orangutan, I think probably the, the only robot uh, orangutan. Um, Steve Grand, a very interesting person because he's, uh, he's self-educated, so he's not, um, not like most of us have been through the, the conventional career process. Uh, however, uh, a man of tremendous accomplishment, and I'm delighted to say he's going to become a doctor of the university in just a few weeks' time, which I think is excellent recognition of his, uh, of his skills and what he's done. So, uh, fast-forwarding a bit to what we're doing in the Open University, around uh, about 2004, uh, Tony Hurst and I wrote this course called uh, Robotics and the Meaning of Life. It was a 10-point course, um, and again, John Rosewell was involved in this, and he, John wrote the, the Robot Lab uh, software for us which enabled us both to simulate the behavior of a robot and to control a real uh, RCX robot with exactly the same code. And on this course, we had uh, two books. One of them was uh, Ruth uh, Eilert's book, which I think is is a very good overview of robotics, um, and at that time was right up to date. Uh, Excellent book. And alongside that, we used uh, Asimov's iRobot, which I personally think is absolutely excellent for um, explaining what robotics is all about and perhaps what robotics is not all about. Um, I noticed also that we have uh, Jane Bromley in the audience, and she was involved in this project called uh, Roberta. Uh, This is a project which was initiated, I think, in, in Germany, um, and again, the idea was to have uh, robotics, which would engage not just techie boys, but also uh, <laughs> girls. And they created a lot of resources in Germany, which, um, which Jane helped to translate into English. And there were some experiments done in this country, and I think that project is, is still ongoing. Um, other things we've been thinking about for a long time, that uh, with this long engagement with robotics in the Open University, thinking initially in terms of adult education, it's always been the challenge to find a low-cost robot. This has been the, um, the kind of the holy grail or philosopher's stone that we've, we've all been looking for for a long time. The, uh, the kit that we had for our T395 course cost us in the order of uh, three or 400 pounds to manufacture, and every year it would go out to a student and it would come back and have to be refurbished at a cost of £70. So it's always been the case that if we could get a robot for less than £70, we can do interesting things. And um, anyway, we're, we're hoping that we may have found uh, some, some suitable um, low-cost robot kit, which will then open up a whole world of new possibilities for us, 
but also possibly for uh, for you too. So uh, we at the Open University, we're, we're really very, very interested in embedding robotics in the curriculum. We're interested in it because it's an intellectual challenge, but we're really interested in it because we think it will improve education uh, in this country. It will improve technical education, uh, STEM education, Many other kinds of education too. I'm told that somebody um, told us earlier that, that robotics can be used for motivating um, uh, writing uh, clearly. And, and we've always known that. So writing reports and stuff like that is another kind of thing that uh, robotics can motivate. Uh, in fact, it can motivate across the curriculum. So uh, we're interested in robotics. Uh, we're interested in, in the curriculum, we're interested in your curriculum, we're interested in our curriculum. So please do talk to us. Uh, hopefully you can work with us and together we can realise the dream. Thanks. Any questions? Okay. Um. I think that this is the point at which we finish the webcast and uh, hand over to... Claire Rocks and Kate Sim there, and uh, I know that uh, we've got a number of discussion topics to, to go through, and we'll then try and pull everything together uh, before the end at five o'clock.